Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on today's show, we welcome business journalist Sean Silkoff from the Globe and Mail to discuss his journey covering the Canadian business and tech world for the last 20 years. Sean shares how he initially stumbled into the journalism world initially at the Globe in the late 90s and how his work covering Canada's wealthiest CEOs and families garnered him a following of readers across the country. Next, we dig into Sean's initial reasons for wanting to cover the tech and startup world in Canada when it only had a few investors and startups to talk about, and how the news coverage of startups and investors has rapidly changed over the years. I pushed Sean to share his views on the recently coined term mannequin startups and how companies like Renault Run and Clearco are so widely covered by the media, but often lack real details on their businesses. Finally, we discussed the exciting news about the new Research in Motion movie being released in theaters and how Sean's book, written with his co-author Jackie McNish in 2013, inspired the film. But before we jump into this week's interview with Sean Silkoff, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. John, welcome back to the tank. Nice to have you again, as always. Thanks, Matt. We uh, definitely got a lot of conversation after the recording on the stuff we were talking about just before we hit the record button on the UBI and AI and how it's replacing jobs. Where shall we start? I think <laughs> one thing I think we should probably start with is the godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton, coming out and saying that AI could post a great threat to humanity greater than climate change, even though he walked it back a little bit. And there's been a lot of people speaking out about how we need to tame it in uh, and how people are signing proposals to force companies like OpenAI to disclose more around copyrights. And we saw President Biden make his uh, pitch to, to leaders in Silicon Valley. What are your thoughts here? Where do we take it from this step here? Is it a little bit of overreaction or is the cat out of the bag and you can't really put it back in? Well, I, I, I think it's actually both. I, I think you, you can't put it back into uh, Pandora's box. The vast majority of applications for generative AI are extremely positive and great for humanity. The problem is it's usually the bad actors, and it's a very, very small number of bad actors that screw it up for everybody. I do think that the power of the possibilities could be very, very disruptive. And and again, you know, you get the disruption all the way to is this are we creating Terminator robots at one extreme to, you know, the manipulation of of thought. We thought already with Cambridge Analytica, it is not a big leap to suggest that you can change sentiment through generative AI. So, and there's everything in between. And one of the things that you and I were just talking about, you know, the whole rapid displacement of jobs in record speed, what will that do to society? And is a destabilized society? So there's a lot of issues. And here is the fundamental question. What is the rust right now? to get it out as fast as possible other than to make money? Or should we get this a little bit right into the right direction? And I think that's kind of the fundamental question. Yeah, I think, I mean, we saw this early on with lookalike audiences, with Facebook. We saw this with how elections obviously can get, you know, swayed one way or another with uh, Cambridge Analytical data. We saw this, uh, we see this all the time when we look at our, you know, our phones and all of a sudden an advertisement pops up because, Whatever data they're using to predict what kind of things we're going to buy, it actually works. So it is very persuasive. And if you start de dealing in the fake side of content being created, what outcomes does that persuade people to think and do with their actions and their vote? 
I think the question of why you don't want to slow it down too much is because you don't want our uh, our enemies leading the way and taking advantage of it where they don't have the same sort of bumpers that they think they should have that we have. There's a lot of vested interests of organizations in the technology sector that don't want to be slowed down. And they have their lobbyists out in full force as well. And we have seen this time and time again. I really do like the reaction. I think the governments have been duped far too many times and everyone's now starting to go, wait a minute, fool me once, fool me twice, fool me 20 times. Maybe I'm going to catch it on the 21st time. Do you think there's a different angle here from Mr. Hinton at all? Or do you think he's being totally truthful in his views? I I honestly don't know, but I think it's a little bit of a head scratcher for me for him to say, I want to be able to speak freely. Google's pretty proud of you. Uh, I think if you want to speak freely, you could speak freely. So I do wonder whether he is really worried uh, ultimately, and this is a convenient way so that he can say what he really wants to say. But he is so influential that a lot of folks are really curious right now. Yeah. Something else is a bit of a head scratcher that I don't know if you, you know, caught was the ambis- ambitious Canadian science projects that were getting <laughs> $1. billion in funding from Ottawa, which was a number of projects that you probably are aware of. $200 million yes. to the University of Toronto to help use AI-powered chemistry labs to develop new materials for a wide range of applications in health and technology, all great initiatives across the country. I guess the thing that scratched my head was how come top schools like the University of Waterloo, Western University, and even the University of British Columbia were missing from the list? Short answers. I, I, I don't know, but a couple of things. I do understand that those allocations were done quite a while ago. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the real focus are those engineering schools. So Western is not, uh, again, I don't know what Western's doing, but your call out of UBC and Waterloo were clearly appropriate. However, you also saw that the federal government is also quite frustrated with those two schools, particularly Waterloo, in how they're entering into IP or research with foreign-based entities. It's really driven from giving away IP to foreigners based on taxpayer dollars. It's being exasperated right now, given the whole China, US, and starting to get some tensions there. And it just so happens when you add on that some of the research dollars are coming from states that might not have an altruistic view of your particular state. I'm not sure this is fully coincidental. Interesting. I mean, Western, in their defense, more healthcare focus is still part of like, you know, the government budget. So I, I'm shocked that they still weren't included. And if you say these were done a long time ago, is the newer news about the IP and the funding they were getting from overseas uh, something that they retroactively pulled back on? Like, were they maybe awarded initially and then they pulled it off? Who knows? Yeah, I, I don't know. They say they haven't. Uh, and some of the universities are reacting far more prudently than others. Uh, I've spoken out publicly about that. And now there's one big defense that they do have, which I do agree with. Part of the problem is there has been a decrease of allocation from taxpayer dollars to fund some of this research. So what they are saying as well, too, is, okay, 
we'll, we'll use better judgment, particularly when we're dealing with nation states that perhaps are, are uh, you know, our perceived digital enemy, for lack of a better term. But you better come with some goods and help us with those dollars. So what I found interesting, this $1.2 billion, uh, I have to say, that's a pretty good chunk of change to come into the university system from our taxpayer dollars. So, you know, it's hard to start to complain and say you get nothing from the federal government. This is pretty material. Absolutely. It's quite material. And it's coming at a time where in the first quarter of this year, Canadian tech ecosystem funding plummeted. The data that we saw recently showed that Canada experienced an 82% drop in the amount invested compared to the same time last year, and 67% drop in the number of deals. So you know, quarter over quarter, we're still seeing a significant drop in the amount of funding that's going into technology. So this funding is obviously very important from the government side. What are you seeing out there, and what do you think we'll see for the rest of the year when first quarter was such a, a huge sell-off in funding for uh, venture capital and technology deals? Oh, I, I think it, the malaise will continue, and I, I think it's going to get it's going to get worse before it gets better. Remember that there's still a fair amount of dry powder out there. The issue is going to be is the fundraising, and folks who are fundraising right now are telling me that it is brutal. I just got off a phone call in the United States. And a very well-known, uh, I would argue it's a it's a top-tier firm, if not the top of the second tier. And they also said, wow, if it wasn't for our own incumbent investors, and they're on fund 13 or something, they said they were surprised how difficult it is. So we are going in a very difficult fundraising winter for sure. And in Canada in particular, it is going to be very trying. So it's probably going to get a lot tougher again than uh, than it is right now. Yeah, we talked about this a lot before. I think the Series A, Series B kind of growthy rounds are not uh, as friendly as people may perceive them, even though maybe the dollars going into those rounds are larger than what we're seeing at our stage at pre-seed and seed, just because those rounds are always bigger. The terms of those deals are not very friendly. In fact, I've heard that they're quite aggressive there's a lot of recaps, a lot of pay to plays happening right now. And even in the mergers that are happening right now that you're seeing announced in the news are not great outcomes for uh, employees and founders. And a lot of them are just clearing the prep stack. With some exception, there are some exceptional companies that are getting funded. I guess we heard the uh, advanced news of, uh, of Cohere an exceptional company in an exceptional space. Uh, but those are, those are the exception. And many of the ones that are, that are absolutely fine businesses, they are structured deals. And you're absolutely right. If it's not new money coming in, the, the, the terms of the next rounds are, are quite onerous right now. Yeah, what I'm also hearing, which is pretty interesting, is that the lenders to a lot of these struggling Series B kind of growthy businesses are now getting into the M&A mix, trying to find acquirers to buy those assets so that they can get parts of their, uh, you know, their lending uh, line back or roll it into a different business. Wow. Well, that just goes to show then that they're not comfortable with their current positioning, even from a debt perspective. Wow. 
Yeah, I haven't heard that yet, but the odds of that turning out to being a positive outcome for that is extraordinarily low. Well, we haven't heard what happened uh, with their sale or financing on the ClearCo yet. So again, there's a lot of moving parts in a lot of these transactions. But speaking of moving parts, you know, you and I spoke about this impending commercial real estate blow up. And uh, you wrote about it recently, and I've spoken with a lot of our real estate investors. Maybe give us an update on what you're seeing out there and and how this could maybe shake out. So I I was hearing rumors that, uh, again, I'm going to give you uh, an example of what a large commercial owner would do is they'd buy a building, interest rates were, were very low or going down, they would increase the mark or the value of the building. And then they would remortgage the property and slowly take out all of the capital invested in that particular property. And so what you're left with is not having very much capital in that building, but the valuation mark extremely high. What's happening now is that as these lending arrangements are uh, are starting to be renewed, you're starting to have these large owners hand the keys back to the banker. There was three in New York that were done by a very well-known Canadian-based owner. I was stunned that it already started. And I'm hearing now from my folks in the United States, the handing back the keys has just started. And in particularly in the large cities where they've had not a good return back to work from pre-COVID, so i.e. like a New York, you know, like a San Francisco, et cetera, these are the first cities that are going to tumble. So what's the problem? So now you have the collapse and you have the banks taking it on the chin. Who are the banks? They happen to be the same uh, regional banks in the United States in particular and disproportionately. And we thought that the run from the tech sector was going to be bad. This is nothing like it. If the regional banks get into trouble by virtue of these bad lending practices. Well, I mean, you look at some of the numbers that are coming out, 25% of all U.S. office space is obsolete. 1.4 billion square feet that may have to be torn down. That's not even like actually available. And now you're seeing people even giving back real estate because they don't have any equity, right? So they're just giving back, you know, the the, the debt they have on it. Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is too, is that there was always this offsetting thing where when interest rates go back up again, yes, their value would come down, but you'd be able to pass on the inflation on the, the, the cost of leasing. But when there is so much supply there, you can't do it. This is why they're going to be whipsawed. And by the way, the big landlords of real estate, uh, particularly whether they're pension funds, are going to be reporting losses on their properties very significant for a number of years to come. Gotcha. And last but not least, you know, John, you're very well respected in the Canadian business community. You obviously speak with a lot of CEOs. We saw an article recently about how a lot of the older generation of CEOs are starting to retire earlier than what a lot of people had planned. Do you think that managing companies at scale, especially in this country with so many different demands, social media, the polar opposite views on the left and right side of the aisle are basically making these well, compensated CEOs saying, enough already. I don't like to be written up all the time saying how big of a a compensation package I received for leading this company of 30,000 employees. What do you think will happen and who will take on the next challenge of being this great CEOs of our country? 
Uh, that's an interesting question. I, I would also say a number of them are are my friends, and I do speak to them about it. And I'm going to use the political spectrum gets a little bit out of whack. And I do think it's gotten out of whack uh, over the last number of years. And it, I hope it to pull back somewhere in the middle and not uh, bend the other way. But there's been a lot of priorities uh, inflicted by boards where they have objectives other than shareholder wealth maximization. And every little, you know, quote, slip up on that. And, and some of them are major, but a lot of them are, are rather minor in the whole scheme of things. So, you know, for example, and again, I, I'm a big person from a sustainability perspective. You have organization, you had, was it, was it RBC that was flailed uh, in terms of their carbon footprint? But, you know, this is a great organization, right? And they're doing something. They also happen to be the biggest bank in Canada, and they got picked on upon that. Now, uh, I think Dave Mackay's response was quite appropriate, but you almost have to say, folks, look at what we're really trying to do. They had this great blue water strategy for, for many, many years. It does get frustrating. And what's happening, too, is you know, CEOs of large public companies are really politicians now. And just like politicians, when we're asking the question, where are all the great politicians? Well, they've had it because they're, they're, they're being judged at a level that's nearly impossible. Well, so same with a lot of these CEOs now. So I do hope that this doesn't cause many of them to say, screw it. I don't need this anymore. I hope not because we're all going to pay a dear price for that. Yeah. It's like when you have a million stakeholders and 1% of those stakeholders create a huge shitstorm, and you need to answer to that, even though it has no bearing on anything else you're doing from the positive side, they just create you know, loud voices and amplify it on social media and stuff. It's a distraction and it's something that you shouldn't be spending a lot of your stakeholders time on. And I am hearing from a lot of public market CEOs that I know that they're tired of being public. It's just too much cost and time and unuseful productivity being spent on trying to create this image for the public to be able to judge you on, which you'll never uphold to. And therefore they'd rather just be a private company building in private and doing all the great things for all the other stakeholders and shareholders in their corner. Yeah, and by the way, and most of them operate as guerrilla warfare. They're cowards sitting behind Twitter handles that no one could see and and abuse them. So I I, I agree. You know, this was kind of part of what we were just talking about at the very beginning, you know, in the whole AI world. These sorts of things, do they get exasperated? And we end up with situations that are, are even more difficult. Yeah, well, hopefully with people looking to happily see more productivity and economic gains for the country, they'll put aside their petty differences for a little bit to make sure everyone is uh, receiving what may become universal basic income one day. But thanks again for joining us in the tank today, John. All right. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with Sean Silkoff from The Globe and Mail. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Sean. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. You know, Sean, you've been covering the technology industry for more than 20 years now, and you've seen many different actors and villains come through the industry. But before we get to all the juicy stuff, it would be great if you could share with our audience how you first got interested in the space and how your career as a tech journalist started off. Well, I've had two goes as a tech journalist. I covered tech sort of part-time, I guess, back in the dot-com, the original dot-com bubble. And that was fascinating. Uh, and then 
I was at Canadian Business Magazine. I went to the National Post. I ended up at the Montreal Bureau there, the Financial Post, for about uh, seven years. So I, I was covering all kinds of things, a tiny bit of tech, but mostly aerospace, beer, pensions, cheese, <laughs> you name it. Uh, that was one of the fun things about being in the Montreal Bureau. I, I once covered a story about uh, a clash in a family company that made uh, canned uh, meatballs and other foods because the the founder wanted to uh, imprint his uh, his religious values on the cans themselves and the son who was running the company didn't want any part of it. I, I talked about the separation of church and stake. So that was... Uh, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Uh, of fun. I didn't really spend a lot of time or pay a lot of attention to tech as a sector. And then I was at the National Post till 2008. I left the business for a little while. I actually worked in uh, Canada Post in communications for uh, two and a half years. I learned a lot on the other side. I ran a group of writers and editors. I even had translators tra um, reporting to me. And so I came back to the Globe and Mail. I came back to journalism in early 2012, and I didn't really have a, a I didn't really have a mandate. I didn't have a beat or anything for the first ten or so months. So I just kind of looked around and and tried to find stories. I've I've been pretty good in my pretty successful in my career finding stories. Like I did a piece that year on uh, what happens to all the old uh, KFC stores after they kick the bucket, literally, and and become other uh, forms of real estate. I did a piece on payday lenders. So it was really, uh, it really eclectic stuff. But of course, you know, being in Ottawa, I, I picked up the local business uh, paper, the Ottawa Business Journal, which is a, a great little city paper. And uh, there was uh, Toby Lutke of Shopify on the cover. So I reached out to him. Back in those days, Shopify had well under 100 people, I think. And, and you know, I think we were drinking coffee together within the hour. And it was neat. I mean, if you think about it, 2012, 2013 is kind of the perfect time to start covering tech or restart covering tech in Canada. I didn't realize that at the time, of course. I did a piece that year about uh, uh, the dismal state of venture capital in Canada. Of course, VC was about to start on a good uh, long run as well. Did a big piece, a couple of pieces on tech, again, among the various other things I was covering. And then one day, Jim Balsillie kind of reaches out out of the blue after he read one of my pieces and wanted to talk about intellectual property. <laughs> I wanted to talk about BlackBerry. He wanted to talk about intellectual property. He did not want to talk about BlackBerry. But uh, we met, we spent an hour, we talked for 55 minutes about uh, intellectual property and five minutes of me trying to convince him unsuccessfully to talk about BlackBerry. He had just left the company a few months earlier, and everyone wanted to know what had happened to, to BlackBerry. That started a sort of a casual relationship of back and forth with him uh, talking about intellectual property, uh, trading emails, stories, and the like. And he was finally ready to talk uh, about 10 months later. And of course, that led to a big breakthrough story that we published in The Globe in 2013, September 2013, about how BlackBerry blew it. We had Jim on the record. We had a three-hour interview with uh, Mike, his uh, co-CEO, Mike Lazaridis, uh, on the record as well, obviously. And that story just blew up. I think we had something like a million hits over a few days. The story itself was covered in every other 
major business uh, publication in the world. And then the following Monday, we heard from an agent saying, have you thought about writing a book? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I just wanted to get the the damn story done. Uh, it was pretty all consuming. So Jackie McNish and I ended up uh, putting a book together that became Losing the Signal. I took uh, the better part of uh, 2014, both of us did, as book leave. And, you know, by the end of putting that book together, you know, interviewing 120 people, uh, spending probably about 25 hours with each of Jim and Mike, I felt like I had developed such a depth of knowledge of the tech industry and how it works that, that, you know, I, and it's fall 2014, I'm coming out of uh, book leave. And I said to my editors, you know, why don't you let me kind of continue to, to cover this space as a sector in Canada, like we do mining or banking or wealth management or retail. And it's pretty small now. I mean, it's like, I think it was like still one or 2% of the TSX. But I said, you know, th these are fast growing companies. There's a lot, there's a lot of indications that the sector is kind of on to something. There's a lot more uh, US VC money coming in, a lot of second, third time founders, a lot of people coming back from Silicon Valley here. And I just, I sensed there was this buzz. And it wasn't, to be honest with you, the easiest sell for the Globe and Mail. You know, I think some of my colleagues wondered why someone with 20 years of reporting experience would want to write about the kids, you know, the startups, like raising $5 million, $10 million. And, and those were the kinds of stories I was starting to write about then. But of course, you know, on the financing side, those led to 20 and $30 million financings and $100 million financings and so on until, of course, we had a spate of uh, initial public offerings. And, you know, covering the big deals is the bread and butter of the Globe and Mail the report on business section. And so it made me feel like that had been the right choice for us. Now, of course, we're in a big, nasty downdraft. And a lot of the companies that went public in that big uh, rush during the pandemic have seen their stock sell off. But, you know, I'm looking over the horizon and I'm seeing the next wave of IPOs. And I think those companies are even better. Uh, I think when this market turns, you're going to see some uh, class one companies come to market and they're going to look a little bit more mature and seasoned IPOs as a whole than we saw a couple of years ago. I think about companies like uh, like Clio, probably Article, which of course is going through some tough times, but like everyone in e-commerce, but it's a pretty impressive company. I mean, I could name lots of others, Trulio, for example. So I think it's a good long-term bet. I think this is a great sector. It's certainly a sector that our readers at the Globe have really connected to. I think it's brought new readers to the Globe and Mail uh, who otherwise might not have found much interest in rocks and trees and, and, and oil and gas and other things that are kind of like not on the radar of a lot of uh, tech entrepreneurs. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a perfect example of that, Sean. I worked on Bay Street for 15 years, was obviously an avid reader, and then took a break, you know, when I moved into tech, uh, because there was just nothing really in the globe about tech until, you know, you started popping your head out. But I got to give you a lot of credit because not only did you put yourself out there to speak with young entrepreneurs and founders at a time when they weren't sexy and they weren't raising billion dollar financing rounds on Bay Street, but you also embodied that sort of long-term mentality of like, I'm going to learn early. I'm going to reach out and start speaking with these founders early and following their journey, even if they're taking small breadcrumbs to get to the big loaf at the end. And I've, you know, I've really respected that about you actually. And even the way you reached out to me when I first got started in 2018 with our first fund, just learning about what our, our mission was and why I decided to do this. And 
look, I remember in 2012, 13, when we started our first company, Turnstile, there was nobody covering uh, the tech space and nobody cared to even invest in it. So uh, I commend you for all that. You also have probably the wittiest headlines uh, for clickbait. So I give you a lot of credit <laughs> for that. But, you know, it's pretty cool. You started your career as an intern at The Globe in 96, writing obituaries, which is almost like a rite of passage, I feel, for any aspiring journalist. And you obviously had a passion for covering business and enjoying enjoyed an amazing career at the Canadian Business Magazine and then the National Post, as you mentioned, and then ended back up at the Globe. I also remember your coverage of uh, the failed BC merger, which makes sense because you were obviously you know, exposed to the, the pension funds and, and how teachers failed at the 2008 uh, acquisition of BC. And then the loss of our nation's most well-known beer company, Molson, to Coors. So uh, I remember all of your coverage back then, but it was your coverage of some of the wealthy Canadian CEOs and their compensation packages that actually got a lot of attention, I remember. So can you share some insight and in how you ended up on that beat back in the early 2000s and how that sort of impacted your, your career as a young journalist connecting with CEOs and founders? I've always been drawn to entrepreneurs because of the entrepreneurs in my life. Uh, two in particular stand out. Well, there's there's several, but I'll I'll pick two. One is my grandmother, my my Bubby Clara, and 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 my Zadie Joe. My my grandparents uh, started a, a restaurant on Park Avenue in Montreal in 1932. Which you may, if you're a student of history, you'll know that 1932 was not a great year to start a business, and it was sweat sweat equity that they uh, that they deployed for you know 40 some years. Uh, I, I joke that my, my grandparents were pioneers of SAS, but it was a uh, smoke meat, smoke meat as a sandwich. And then my, uh, my aunt Linda as well in uh, Linda Cantley in uh, Toronto, she was an entrepreneur as well. She sold, I think the first uh, leg warmers in the 1980s. There was a story in the Toronto star about her and, you know, Wayne Gretzky's girlfriend came into her boutique at, I think, uh, Young and Gerard. Carol Michaud to buy them. And, uh, and, you know, she ended up with about, uh, four or five outlets, uh, downtown Toronto. She had a store in a great corridor leading from the subway to the Royal Bank Plaza. And she had a little boutique. It was kind of like a forerunner to winners in a way, off price, uh, women's fashion. And the turnover in that place was astonishing. And she had hosiery kiosks. And so she was someone I spoke to a lot early in my career, uh, particularly when I was covering retail for a Canadian business magazine. I, I learned a lot from her and I appreciated and learned firsthand about the the struggles, challenges and rewards of, of being an entrepreneur. So I was always drawn to the to those people starting up and that human struggle and achievement and sometimes sacrifice and compromise and you know in other cases uh betrayals and other grand themes of 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 life which existed in entrepreneurship and really the project for me that kind of turned me into a business reporter permanently i would say was uh doing i, I worked a little bit you're right on, on the compensation packages uh over the years but it was uh doing the piece on canada's uh wealthiest uh people my editor art johnson at canadian business magazine after i started there asked me in uh, late 98 you know what would be involved in doing a canada's richest canadians list and up to this point like i joined canadian business as an intern in 96 I went on full-time at 97 and I was still kind of like, I didn't know if I wanted to write about business. Like I, I got a business degree. I didn't really enjoy it at the time. I was kind of lost. I, I went to Queens and I came out, I didn't get any of the the big jobs that you got out, coming out of Queens Commerce in 92, which was, you know, working at Warner Lambert or uh, Arthur Anderson uh, or going to Bay Street. Um, and I, I just, I just didn't fit. 
And I wasn't that interested in any of those things. And my mom was the one who said to me, why don't you go to journalism school? And even at journalism school, I wasn't sure what I was doing until I got my first big story. And uh, it was a, a class assignment that ended up in the Ottawa Citizen about how the Museum of Civilization was cheating on its attendance figures. And all the other museums in town were bitching on the record uh, about <laughs> about how they how they counted attendance. And it was like being bitten by the radioactive uh, journalistic spider. It just sort of it just kind of made me a journalist and want to do this for my career, but I didn't want to write about business. And I didn't even tell art when I started Canadian business that I had a, a business degree. Like I was, I was kind of shy about my lack of engagement in the subject, but you know, after a couple of years and then working on that project, like I led a team of people, we had about six months, eight months to put it together. We, I met with Forbes. They kind of gave me the blueprint for how you do this sort of thing. And when that came out in mid-99, it was kind of a sensation. It was interesting. And I found that all these stories about all these wealthy Canadians, you know, some of them self-made, some of them inherited, some of them married into it, et cetera. I mean, like people got it from all sorts of different ways. But when you looked at that pastiche of the 100 richest Canadians, what you saw was a reflection back of the Canadian economy and some of the great stories that uh, define our country and that I felt were sort of undertold in the Canadian narrative. We don't really celebrate our our entrepreneurs. They're kind of nobodies compared to in the United States. Or we, you know, the, the general narrative is that we treat the wealthy, uh, the ultra wealthy and CEOs with uh, suspicion and derision. And there's reasons for that, of course, uh, as always. But, you know, these are the people who employ thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Canadians. They make decisions every day that, uh, that do shape our world. And, and, and I think that really, that really convinced me that I wanted to bite down and stick with business journalism. And I was also, I was comfortable with numbers. I was comfortable going through balance sheets and financial statements and continuing to learn and ask questions. And then ultimately trying to translate the, you know, the gobbledygook in uh, note six of the financial statements into a compelling narrative for the general reader. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading those and definitely it shaped the way I viewed a lot of the families that obviously, you know, we get to see around Toronto and stuff differently. And that was an eye-opening experience as like a young emerging, you know, business wannabe. But did you ever feel that your coverage of CEOs or their companies, maybe it prevented you from getting access to those companies and those CEOs and future coverage? I mean, I'm assuming it comes with the territory when you kind of poke and prod and start writing stuff that shows up in the Global Mail about a company and their CEO's uh, compensation packages. But were there any like stories off the record of CEOs reaching out to you that they just lost their shit on you and said like, how dare you write about how much I made last year? <laughs> I, you know, we had all types. We had more than one uh, member of the rich list who complained that we didn't put them high enough on the list. We had some that uh, were offended that we would put them on the list and, and where did you get that information uh, and were hostile and others were just very matter of fact and very helpful and, 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 and total straight shooters and thought nothing of it. You know, every day I, I'm writing stories, putting stories together and, you know, sometimes they're complimentary. Sometimes they're, you know, financing things are going well. Sometimes they're controversial and, and negative. Um, I always try to be fair and I always try to think first about the reader. Like, you know, I'm not an extension of the marketing department. I, 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 I don't like it when people say that I'm a cheerleader for the ecosystem. 
and I, I sort of laugh because uh, I don't think I am. I think I've I've written over the years, you know, some stories that you could read as positive because things are going positively for companies. But I can think of other stories that were. I, I would like to think of them as piercing and revealing and not necessarily very flattering. Like I did a big uh, feature on uh, Vision Critical in 2016, and I know that made some people there extremely mad. Angus Reed himself was quite outspoken uh, with his hostility toward toward my coverage. I, I wrote some stories about Element AI that were uh, very critical of uh, of the company and kind of what it represented. You've definitely had some hot takes and some soft takes, I'd say. You know, and and it's hard to strike the balance. I'm sure as an individual, you know, even the way you've you talked about the Vicky mandate and and how it's a handout for you know the venture community and stuff like that. But I can totally understand how it's hard to strike a balance. I guess my question would be. How do you find striking a balance between the business and technology geek reporter or readers versus the everyday reader and how that's changed over the years? I feel that I write for the everyday reader. And I think that gives me some advantages because I, you know, generalize things for the general reader. And I think that's a good exercise for me as a journalist because I'm trying to explain to the general reader why these things are important, what it is about them that are important. And that means I don't have to. Uh, use a lot of jargon. And in fact, I try to keep the jargon out of things. And I'm trying to explain why this sector, why this technology uh, in particular is important, why it's important to our readers, to society, et cetera. And so I feel like I'm in a fortunate position that I that I get to do that. And then I it prevents me naturally from getting too lost in the details. You'll notice I almost never use the term software as a service in my stories, SaaS. It's, a, it's the most common lingo in tech, right? And has been for years, but it's jargon. So I'll say subscription cloud-based software, which even that is is not ideal. I try to stay away from industry lingo because I'm writing for for general readers. And and again, like terms that you throw around every day, I try and I try and stop those from getting in the paper. It's a tough balance to strike. I totally get it. But the industry is changing so rapidly and it's changed so much since you started recovering it in 2013, 14. You know, what has been the biggest changes in the ways that the founders and the investors are seeing coverage of their industry change since you've started covering it? You know, I I guess I'll talk from the Canadian perspective. I mean, things here were like very Spartan. It was like, like the Canadian tech sector was like grain silos on the prairies. You know, there was like one here and one there, not a lot of critical mass. I mean, I think I would say the biggest change has been something you would notice when you go to Vancouver now or certainly downtown Toronto. Well, let's say a few years ago before everyone started working from home, because now we're the virtual version of what you would have seen on say King and Spadina three years ago, you know, just like a lot of mass, a lot of young people around. It has helped to make our cities better too. I think having young people who are successful and have opportunities and ambition and are mobile and are employed is, is, is terrific. And I think those people are the next class of entrepreneurs. And I think it's brought an entrepreneurial mindset to Canada that I don't think really existed to such a degree a decade ago. I mean, I remember when I came out of business school, the idea of starting your own business was foreign and weird. Like most of my colleagues, and as I said, most of my colleagues ended up taking the the major streams into large corporate jobs. That's what you wanted to do. We weren't really taught that it was a good idea to go start your own company. Now, a few years later, like in the dot-com boom, I know that changed to the point that I had friends who were at Harvard or other MBA programs 
major MBA programs and they all wanted to work in startups. So I think that, I think that's probably existed for, for a while, but it just feels like it's blossomed in Canada in the last uh, 10 years. And I feel like we're still kind of like in the first inning of that journey. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we worked at Spadina in Adelaide for our first uh, incubator space at the tank. And that's exactly where everyone was, you know, humming around, buzzing every night of the week. There was another event. It really did bring a lot of the young people out of their communities in the rural suburbs to bring them downtown and trying to be a part of something that was big. But as it relates to news coverage, you know, I will say that a lot of people have become more intelligent as it comes to PR news coverage. Um, some people would say, as soon as you close your round, you go out and announce it and you get all this big fanfare. But founders now, I think, are becoming more intelligent about how to use the media and coverage to their advantage and waiting for the perfect time. Some rounds that you've been announcing, we know personally, they closed over a year ago. And those founders waited a long time until they had other things to loop into it. So from your perspective, how are you trying to manage the the benefits to the founder and their company versus the benefits to your reader on news that you want to include in the daily uh, Globe and Mail? Well, my first duty is to the reader. You know, startups can try and stage manage the announcement of news, but you know, I, I I'm not I'm not a theater. <laughs> the Globe and Mail is not a theater, and so if you raised your money a year ago, especially in this market, you know, if you come out with a a great sounding race, you know, I'm going to start asking questions like, well, hold on a second. When did you like, that sounds like a weird sounding raise for 2023. Are you sure you didn't raise that, that money last year? And I've actually turned a couple of companies down saying, well, like this is old news. Um, but I don't always know that, you know, and, and, and that's not always shared with me. You got to call me more, Sean. <laughs> Thanks. I know I do. Cause you've written about some recently that were definitely over a year ago. I know. I, I, it happens. And listen, I don't get it perfect by any means. Far from perfect. You know, I try my, I try my best. And, and also that's why like, you know, financing is not always the best news. Like I'd rather tell a story about a company and where they are in their journey. And, you know, financing is, is rarely the end of the story. It's often the beginning of the story or, or something along the way. And, and I, I don't know if you've noticed in my coverage, but I've definitely been, um, downplaying the financings a little bit recently. Not all of them. I mean, sometimes they're interesting or, or noteworthy, but you know, there's bigger stories to tell. And I think particularly in this market, you know, I think we've gotten a little sober to, or sobered up to sometimes the dollar figure is not the story. How you got there is the story. Were there liquidation preferences uh, put in? Was it a tough deal? Is there a uh, severe down valuation going on here? And I, I find that's more the story. And so I'm trying to find out, I, I'm always asking, like one of the first questions now is, well, when did this close? Because that's part of the narrative. Again, if it closed this, like if you can raise 30 million with two new, inv two new investors as co-leads in this market, like that's a story. That says that you're doing something extremely well and, and you're standing apart from, from the sector, which is, is still in a pretty tough state, I would say. But if you, you know, if you raise 30 million, if you raised 100 million a year ago, a year and a half ago, and had a big league investor leading in, you're only telling me now, like I, something's going to stand out about that and be a little bit funny. And I'll probably ask a few, a few questions and I won't always get the answers. And I, I try and yeah, you're absolutely right. Like I'm, I'm, I'm constantly aware that I'm not getting the full story. Uh, to defend the founders, just so you know why some people hold off, Sean, is because they haven't told their employees yet because a lot of times they want to do it at a time when it coincides with like year-end stuff or you know, they know as soon as they announce a big raise, everyone's going to be asking for pay raises or they're going to quit and go work somewhere else. So they all try to manage internal politics as well as external views. 
but that's always not something they're going to share with you as well, because that's something that you could potentially write about. But I want to get into some of the nitty gritty here. So I've coined the term mannequin startups. Not sure if you've heard it before. Right. I love it. So for our listeners who haven't heard me describe it, I describe it as a company that appears beautiful and successful on the outside based on the media coverage and the brand name VCs that have backed them. But on the inside, they are completely hollow and dead. And they're starting to see more and more of those pop up. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on this concept, which is very different than the zombie startup, which everyone can see is dead? And why has the media had a hard time uncovering them? Well, first of all, I'm going to ask you to name some names. Who are the mannequin startups? Well, we just had them reported recently. Clerico and Rental Run, for sure, are definitely ones that were perceived to be very successful you know, in the recent while with big fundraising rounds, 150, 350 million. And then all of a sudden, as they have to interact with the market, we see a bankruptcy filing or a 90 plus percent recap. So up until that point, they were perceived to be by the media and the broader investor community as well-run and um, successful uh, startups. So I know it's a tough question to answer, but I guess when does the the cloth come off from your perspective? And when do you stop putting out somewhat positive coverage? Does something have to happen with the market for you to report on it because that's a tangible event? Or is it something that you can actually poke and prod and reach out for updates on from the, the broader audience? You're only as good as the, and your stories are only as good as the information you're able to gather and the information you're, you're pursuing. And and I'll be honest, I, I'm run off my feet most of the time covering covering tech. So having the luxury sometimes to, to double down and really go deep on a, on a company is um, something you don't necessarily get from the outset. And sometimes that information just isn't, uh, isn't available. Like, like it took me about probably a year on Element AI and talking to a lot of people, for example, and going back to Australia, and this was in the good times, going and talking to a lot of people and starting to listen carefully and pulling on a few threads and then sort of spending that time, not just like one day on a story and then out it goes, but seeing over the period of time, how they were or were not living up to expectations and what they were telling the market and noticing people coming onto projects, leaving projects that I was able to, to see that. And yeah, listen, some of my early coverage on Element AI was, you know, new star of the AI sector, Yoshua Bengio is involved, raised all this money, have, you know, have all these, the world's investors beating a path to their door and so on. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of time. People leave a company, things evolve. People are starting to talk to you. People are willing to share information with you. Sometimes the stories just aren't available. I mean, it was the same thing with Vision Critical. I mean, that story was probably about um, nine months in the making. And that started with an interview where somebody said something. I, I would not want to say who, but somebody said something that was a little bit off and weird to me. And I was like, aha, that's really interesting. I heard there was a financing coming that fall. The financing fell apart. When I started to dig, I found out what the reason was. And I just kept pulling on threads and threads and slowly one by one, earning the trust of people and eventually having sort of uh, internal documents sent my way. So these stories can take a lot of time. You know, it's it's we don't always have time when you're starting out we look for the validation points in any story. Okay. So a big name VC is willing to put a lot of money in. Maybe a CEO is someone who's done this before is very experienced or well-known. They have uh, great sounding uh, reference customers, tier one blue chips. So, you know, these are kind of marks of success and, and in the matching of patterns, you say, well, okay, that sounds, that sounds kind of credible. sounds like they're, they're doing the right thing. Maybe you'll check glass door and, you know, they've got a, 
8.5 or 9 CEO approval out of 10. But um, we're typically running around from day to day, from story to story, and you don't always have time to you know double click on, on, on the ones until you start to hear things, until things start to filter out. And then you have to validate. And sometimes that, that can take a long time. And you want to get that story right. In my coverage of companies that have raised money and have, have done particularly well, I, I try not to over-enthuse. I try to stick to the to the facts of what people are saying. Well, you've done that recently with some great coverage. You did the MyoVision deal, very you know well-written, great amount of detail. Uh, we talked about it on the podcast here, like the level of detail you had on that transaction was phenomenal. You talked about the D-Wave kind of rescue financing, even though it's struggling to, to get some capital in the door. You've had uh, some great writing on other large financing rounds or you know massive recaps of businesses. You re- recently wrote the piece on the ununicorning of Clearco. First off, how did you get that level of detail? You know, is it insiders, outsiders, service providers? And secondly, you know, what do you think about holding back and putting more blame in your pieces? What, how do you kind of balance that as well, Put, putting your own opinion into the facts? You know, when you've got a contentious story, you want to stick to the facts and stay away from the conjecture. And sometimes you have access to some things, but you don't have access to other things. And that's always the challenge with journalism. You don't always have all 1,000 pieces of the 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. You know, maybe you're only able to get 100 and you've got just a little story. Maybe you can get 900 of them, but there's always missing pieces. And you don't want to erode the credibility of what you do have by speculating about what you don't have. So I, I think that's kind of the way I try to play stories. And sometimes sometimes you have another month, another two months to put a story together. And sometimes you don't. You know, with both ClearCo and Rena Run, I knew that we were sort of racing against the clock. I, I knew others would have that story. Uh, in the case of Rena Run, actually, the logic had had even broken the first couple of stories. But I had a sense that the bankruptcy file, or the um, yeah, their, their creditor protection filing was imminent, and Eamon O'Rourke was willing to speak with me, as was uh, Phil Wickham from Sosa Ventures. So that was great access. I got a lot of insight. I was able to use that to speak to others around the story to get more of the more of the picture. But I had like, you know, I had seventy two hours to write a major story. I worked, I blew up a weekend to do that. Must happen often. <laughs> yeah. More often than I'd like, but, but it was, it was definitely worth it in the, in that case. Um, you know, again, with ClearCo, I was absolutely uh, convinced that uh, someone else would get that information before, before long. You, you make do with what you have. Sometimes you try and play it quite straight to the facts, just so you, because you don't want to destroy your credibility in a story if you've made a leap of conjecture that's completely phony. But I also know that sometimes I fall short on, and like I learn every day, right? I'm still learning. I'm still being humbled every day by what I don't know. Well, because as soon as you write something, and then the person who maybe wasn't going to speak to you before, as soon as you write it, they call you up and say, "Okay, now I'm ready to speak because you screwed up on a big piece here." And it just takes that screw up. That happens a lot. That, that happens, yeah. It just as often it happens that someone says, "You know, I you got that right, but there's more." So I prefer those calls than you screwed up. <laughs> I'm sure you do. But you know, there's people out there who are like really good sources of mine and, and they will not hesitate to tell me that I that I screwed up in a story. And that's fine. You know, I think I think my hit rate's pretty good. I'd say it's pretty good, but you're always you're never gonna bat a hundred. It's just all about how many shots you can take. So, you know, I want to switch gears though for a sec. You've covered the the private companies very well, but there's also the small cap Canadian tech IPOs, which have really uh, not seen too much uh, fanfare. They underdeliver when it comes you to- think? 
you know, they <laughs> underdeliver when it comes to positive coverage. You got e-automotive delisting, you've got the LifeSpeak, you've got Q4, Coveo, the list goes on. I mean, is this just a byproduct of our retail investors not really understanding or caring much about small cap tech stocks? Or is it more complicated than that when it comes to the US? What's your thoughts on this? It kind of points still to, like I said earlier, that we are in the first inning. And I think a lot of companies went public in 2020 and 21 that really shouldn't have. And, and you look at them now, you know, a year, year and a half later, and I can't believe they're this small, this uh, this financially fragile. And that's why I say I have more hope for the for what I think is the next wave of, of IPOs. And I think the bubble, the bubble probably came about two or three years too early for the credibility of the Canadian tech ecosystem. I hope it didn't hurt its credibility too much because like some of that stuff that went public had no business being public. And that's pretty obvious now, but, but like, let's face it, this was a broad theme around the tech world. You know, the Canada was not alone in that sense. A lot of companies went public that shouldn't have been public. I mean, there's the whole SPAC class, like what on earth was anyone thinking taking deep tech years from commercialization uh, expensive technology out to market for like a one shot deal from these SPAC investors who could like back out. Like, like that's what a terrible, like look at D wave D wave merges with a SPAC. Yeah. You know, this thing has been raising hundreds of millions of dollars for years. It's just in the, at the dawn of commercialization, real commercialization. I mean, their revenue this year is going to be 12 or 13 million. They say up from seven last year, which is an early stage company, but you know, they've raised a lot of money they still need to keep developing this technology. They were going to go out and solve their financing problems by merging with a SPAC. And guess what? Of the $300 million that the SPAC investors put it, committed, they pulled like $291 million out, leaving $9 million. Pretty good magic trick. It's a great magic trick. And, and the astonishing thing is that $9 million didn't even cover the deal costs. The deal costs were something like eleven to $12 million. So the finance, so most of the money came from their old financiers like PSP, Goldman, you know, the same old, like, why did they go public? And now they've got a crappy stock that's trading for 50 cents. They had an equity line of credit, which has been uh, enormously dilutive. And now they don't have access to that line of equity line of credit, even because the stock's under a dollar. And that's the, that's one of the terms and conditions. So, but you know, that's like the story of probably dozens and dozens and dozens of other SPACs. A few people have a lot to, to answer for, for uh, rushing these companies to the the public markets. Look, we didn't lead the way here, obviously, in Canada, but we also have our own graveyard. But, you know, there's probably a lot of founders out there of these public penny stocks now, or small, less than 100 million market cap companies that came out at a billion dollars that want to do the D-list like Jason Chaptank did with the automotive, or that, you know, LifeSpeak, uh, Michael and Nolan would do, and Q4 with Daryl. Like, there's just too much cost to become a public company and to stay public, that is goes right to your bottom line. I mean, that's millions of dollars that you just have to pay for uh, compliance, auditing, reporting, DNO insurance that a lot of private companies don't have to pay cash for. So I think the question that you uh, raised, which is a good one, is like, do you think the benefits of being public as a small cap Canadian tech company outweigh the benefits of staying private for longer? And I think we're figuring that out quite quickly right now. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, well, and I think you ha- it goes to fundamentals. Like you have to, you have to know your market, you know, and your market is investors, and your market is institutional investors or retail investors. And I mean, who knows retail? The retail investor tastes change rapidly. So really, you're talking institutional investors. So I think 
I, and I don't know, cause I don't know the side of the street that well, but I, I would think that there really needs to be an education of what to expect, what, what institutional investors, what the grownups are expecting to see out of your company as a growth company, like, like map out the next five to 10 years. How do you make this a win for those investors? I would think that if your company can't deliver what fund managers would want and expect and would be satisfied by, then, then, then maybe going public is not the, the right move, unless you're just trying to make a cynical cash grab at the height of the market and hope that that buys you the time to, to kind of get to where you need to be. But I would think if you're doing that, like if you raised a lot of money in 2021 because the market was hot and you knew that by 2024, all would be right with that money. Well, that's three years of pretty sour public market investors. And, uh, you know, I th- there's always the risk that you're going to get punished or put in a doghouse uh, if you're not, uh, you know, for, for that three-year gap that you took advantage of the markets to to finance. I'm speculating that companies companies that go public don't get enough of that education or understanding. Like it's so interesting in biotech. I cover biotech as well. And there is such a clear understanding among these early stage startups of exactly what you're expected to deliver, who's going to finance you, what you're going to be worth, where and when you can go public. It's 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 probably a little more staid and um, and managed in a way, but you know that if you're an early stage, you know preclinical, you're going to be worth something. You know if you prove preclinical results, you go into the clinic for safety trials, you're going to start to get more excitement. Entering phase two efficacy you're going to start to get those crossover investors who invest both in private and public. And there's a very clear sense. And I think the startup world really lacks that. Yes, yeah, because uh, they're running science experiments <laughs> that have clearly defined milestones and run by regulatory agencies. Whereas in the SaaS world, it's a complete social experiment that has no regulatory oversight or visibility into what the milestones really need to be for them to get to the next tier. It's pretty clear. Sometimes, but there's also enterprise software companies and a lot of them, you know, once you have product market fit and you're hitting that vir- virality, you can probably start to, I would think that there should be a whole class of investors by now in private and public that have seen this movie before, know what the client base is like and 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 with enough data points around what's working, how it's working, what it's delivering can reasonably extrapolate uh, the growth path of this company. You're right. I mean, you know, in the dawn of social networks, who could have, or or Google, who could have predicted 10 or 15 years from hence what the investor base would would look like for a company like that? But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be aware or cognizant of the fact that you have to be serving and managing shareholders and and winning them over and impressing them and satisfying them with what your company has to offer. That that doesn't excuse that, you know? No, it doesn't excuse it at all. And we'll wait to see how the next wave of IPOs perform if that window does open. But I want to switch gears to something that's more pressing that I think you have some thoughts on, which is obviously the biggest trend happening now in the artificial intelligence and machine learning space and how these technologies are applying themselves to a wide variety of industries. We've got voice assistants with our own company, VoiceFlow, with self-driving cars, uh, and revolutionizing other industries, as well as content creation and the news industry. So are you concerned at all about ChatGPT replacing you one day? And if not, how come? <laughs> well, I asked ChatGPT as an experiment a couple of weeks ago to tell me seven facts about Sean Silkoff. Just, you know, I, I've got a little bit of a public profile. So I, I, it was an experiment. It got uh, five of them wrong. And then when I pointed out which five are wrong, it got uh, six of them wrong. 
So you feel safe. <laughs> well, no, I know that I know these language learning because you just improve the uh, algorithm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I know these algorithms will get better. You know, it still comes down to like, how are you going to make money off of this? And just ooh, AI is everywhere. Is I, I don't think is you know it's it's now in the public conscious, but it's like, how do you take AI and 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 make make a buck off of it? How do you? But this AI doesn't necessarily go out and win customers and 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 make cases for ROI and that sort of thing. I mean, that's that's what separates a winning technology company from a losing technology company is that it delivers some kind of value that people are willing to pay money for. At the end of the day, maybe not for a few years. If you've got to, if you're a mannequin company, as you say, and, and the venture capital is is pouring in and, and keeping you afloat. But at the end of the day, you have to prove how are you providing some utility or 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 function people are willing to pay money for. You know, I think ChatGPT. Uh, I think all of this, these trends, and other AI companies uh, like MindBridge, which is I've talked to a couple of companies in the last week that are using different corners of AI, and it's not about the AI. It's interesting. It's about what it can deliver you know, what people are willing to pay for. What they're willing to pay for is not AI. What they're willing to pay for is an improvement or a new thing that didn't exist before that that they see has value. And whether or not it's got AI or three mice on a hamster wheel doesn't really matter to most consumers. So I think I think there's a lot of hype right now. I don't think AI is coming for my job. I think AI is coming for a lot of people's jobs. I mean, from what I understand and what I've read, AI is a is a new models are a great shortcut for putting together content, whether it's uh, written content or uh, code. Some of it's pretty banal and mundane, and it reads like it's written by a machine. But that might not be the case in a year. You know, I, I'd be interested to see uh, how what it does for the music industry. I mean, people's ears are very discerning; they hear something, they like it or they don't, and it won't really matter to most people if it was made by a machine or a human being. I mean, a lot of music that's come out in the last uh, 20 or 30 years has been machine assisted, to say the least, you know, with auto-tune. And- to say the least. And it's a lot of repetitive beats from old songs that have just continued to be reiterated, but with the same underlying sound. So I agree with you. I mean, I think the one question I would have to ask you is what's currently going on in Ottawa in your backyard and all the protests with the CRA and the public service employees, do you think AI is something that people are ignorant towards and how it could replace a lot of the mundane tasks that a lot of these people, unfortunately, are trying to strike for to work from home? I think it's in the headlines. Uh, you know, when it's on the talk shows, it's in the, uh, you know, the late night talk shows, you know, it's hit the public consciousness. And, and ChatGPT certainly has done that. I think people would probably be saying, well, geez, we've been warned about AI for decades now, uh, the Terminator and and so on and so forth. I, I think there's probably a greater risk at this point of new jobs being um, created. Well, I think, but that's the thing. I think jobs will be created along uh, with jobs that are destroyed, and it, but but the work world will shift. Like um, at Jay Agrawal and 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 the gang from U of T have written a couple of books about this. Who knew that photography could be reduced to a math problem that computers could solve? But humans now are going to make a living more using their judgment, uh, which is which is interesting. I think it is yet to shake out. I think. Some areas where we think AI is going to replace us is not going to happen to the extent people think. Like, I don't think AI is going to be replacing radiologists. I don't think, I don't think uh, medical systems will allow that. Even if they end up being better than humans, you're going to need a human set of eyes. I don't think we're going to see widespread driverless cars everywhere, driverless vehicles on the roads, because I think at the end of the day, my, my personal suspicion, and maybe I'm wrong, is that at some point, if uh, AI starts to, you know, take the place of hundreds of thousands of truck drivers, you know, there's going to be political pressure and 
the politicians and regulators who make the rules are probably going to throw up a handful of roadblocks that are going to make it very difficult. Well, I'm sure the uh, Freedom Convoy will get a lot larger um, <laughs> if, if the AI starts replacing the truck drivers. But uh, we can talk about this forever. You know, one incredible story that you wrote, Sean, over the years that I think everyone in this country read was the one you wrote about our close friend on the podcast, John Ruffalo, and his devastating cycling accident and his road to recovery while launching his newest investment fund, Mavericks. I mean, can you just share a little bit about your experience writing that piece, how emotional it was, I'm sure, and how obviously difficult it was for John during that time for him and his family, but having a front seat at writing that story with John? Yeah, I, and I wrote that with uh, with my colleague uh, Josh O'Kane as well. It was, um, you know, some stories are special in a way because you're dealing with a lot more humanity and 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 strife and uh, life threatening situations. And and we knew that it would be a different and unique story. That a lot of it would be about his struggle to survive, first of all, and then to go through the the medical system. And it was tough. And I think we wanted to reveal some of that. And, and John was game. John was game to share. And he put us in touch with his doctors and, and we talked about it. And I think sometimes you want to bring your reader into the, into the room, whether it's the operating room or the, the boardroom or whatnot, and be kind of a fly on the wall and get people to understand and feel a story, you know, because when you can feel a story as a fellow human being, that that's very powerful. In terms of emotion, I mean, I find you try to lock out your own emotional feelings about a story as you're writing it. You're aware of the humanity and the power of a story, but you sort of keep your own sensibility or relation to the person you try to in check. Your job is to tell the story, not to be the story and not to be pulled into the story so much. Like when we went to Lac, I, I was part of the team that covered the Lac Megantic uh, disaster. I went there with a job and I was surrounded by human suffering and, and disaster and tragedy and heartbreak and devastation. And, you know, it was hard to keep my, my shit together for the week. I like, but I knew I had a job to do. I was there to, with a small team of people to report the news, to get it out there and it's like, I, I kept my humanity in a box in a way, you know? And, and like, it's funny, the moment I left Lac Megantic at the end of the week, I was driving to Sherbrooke. Well, on, on the way to Sherbrooke, on the way ultimately home. And I burst into tears. You know, that's kind of rare for me, but but it was like, I had so many kind of, I think I'd bottled up so much of uh, the emotions that you have talking to these people who've lost their family or friends or businesses or whatnot, uh, you know, all that. And, and try and focus on letting them do the, telling, you doing the listening and the synthesizing so that other people can read it. And that was a very important story. And and it was likewise with John's story. I mean, what he went through and the perseverance he and determination she showed to not only try to walk again, but come back and 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 be a business leader was was a very powerful story. Yeah, it was the most powerful story I read. I mean, I definitely shed a lot of tears reading it, even knowing the story. And um, in fact, one of our LPs in our fund had a very similar unfortunate accident, and he he read it in the Globe on the weekend, and and he reached out to me to connect him with John. Uh, so that they can uh, share stories and, and experiences together. So it, it touched a lot of lives uh, for sure. And you did an excellent job with that piece. So thank you for, for sharing that story behind the scenes on that. We knew we were telling a powerful story and, and we knew what we needed to do to try to bring that and, and, and bring the readers into the story and experience it, but also try not to let ourselves get in the way in our own feelings, because that's our, again, our job is to try to not overly f- filter John's story from, from the readers. 
Well, you got some exciting news coming out this month, as the book that you co-authored with veteran Canadian business journalist Jackie McNish in 2013 about the downfall of research in motion, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, called Losing the Signal, is finally being released as a major motion picture. Well, it's exciting that someone felt that our book was would be good raw material for a movie, and Actually, there were a number of filmmakers who did reach out to us after the after the book came out. So it's fantastic. It's great. It's exciting. The thing that's exciting to me the most, I think, as the writer of the book, co-writer of the book with Jackie, is that uh, that the story will find a new audience. And people, I think, I'm already seeing this in a lot of the coverage uh, and a lot of the things people like Jay Baruchel, who's in it, has said, people have, have really gained an appreciation for what blackberry for what research emotion did which was you know they they birthed the smartphone industry people had tried to put email and other digital functions in handheld devices for years none of them had really worked commercially successfully for a long time and this little company from waterloo did it and it's the reason why we all walk around looking at our palms all the time now for better or for worse emphasis on worse <laughs> some days. This was them. It didn't start with Apple. Uh, it started with BlackBerry. Now, and 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 that's why we wanted to tell the rise as well as the fall. And in fact, the two co-founders, when they agreed to speak with us, said, you know, we don't want to just participate in a book on how things screwed up. Like we felt like we created an amazing company here that changed changed the world. And and we said, yeah, of course. And that's a narrative. That's a narrative arc that we want to uh, we want to capture. And so it's fun to see it come out and, and inspire a movie, you know, um, and it's fun to see what elements they uh, doubled down on. I mean, they left a lot out. They changed a few things. It is a movie. It is an adaptation. I mean, every adaptation changes things. Uh, it's funny. They actually call it a fictionalization. And uh, whereas a lot of these movies would say, you know, based on a true story. And I think a fictionalization is probably a little more honest for most adaptations. Some things didn't happen the way you see it on screen. Um, and, but, you know, they also tap into some of the greater truths about the story. And there's some great insights. And, and you know, for the arc of the book, it actually follows it and some of the key uh, pivot points in the story quite closely. Uh, again, they offer a cinematic interpretation. You know, we had 250 pages to tell um, a story about what happened, capture a rise, capture a fall, and capture a deterioration of a partnership that was probably one of the most successful ever in Canadian business of two, two, uh, two entrepreneurs. They have two hours to entertain the hell out of people. Right. <laughs> it's tough. It's a different medium. It's a different storytelling style. Like in any adaptation, often there's great passages where if you're putting it on stage or screen, you kind of have to invent the dialogue. You have to go deep in characterizations or or facial reactions that we don't cover in the book. You know, they've done that. They have a very strong vision of the movie they wanted to tell. The book ends uh, a lot later than their movie ends. Their movie ends sort of shortly after the arrival of the storm. Our book uh, ends uh, uh, just after Jim and Mike both leave the company in early 2012. And uh, it's like ending a, ending a story. Like, where do you end a story? Uh, this was actually a, a point that we debated uh, when we put the book together because I thought we could do a whole chapter on the Torsten Heinz era who took over from Jim and Mike. Uh, in the end, that was about a page and a half of the epilogue. And that was the right choice because this really was the story of Jim and Mike. And cinematically, like they could have told that whole 
long, painful story, starting from the introduction of the storm in 2008 to the playbook, a lot of decisions along the way. But, you know, if you were sitting in the theater watching that part of the movie for like 45 minutes, it would probably start to feel like dental surgery after a while. It's a case study in the book, but in the movie, it would start to drag, you know? Yeah, getting through a movie of two hours to get through all the juicy stuff is definitely a, a challenge to overcome. But, you know, living through that, working on Bay Street when, you know, the Blackberries were obviously the most popular thing uh, for everyone. But also having a lot of friends, as I'm sure you did, working at Research in Motion in Ottawa, telling us what was going on on the inside and how difficult it was to update the software on every single new device that came out and how they totally didn't talk to each other. Like you just heard these stories and I'm so excited to see how it plays out. But I think I'm most excited to see how this story transfers to the next generation of entrepreneurs in Canada who may not have been around for this exact moment in time and the lessons they can take away from this about how long it is of a journey, how um, devastating it is when things don't work out and how there is positives that can come out of such great losses for founders, even if they don't see the the rise and eventual success of uh, a great idea like this. So I uh, thank you for uh, allowing this to become a movie uh, because that's a great way to share it with the next generation of entrepreneurs. You're welcome. I hope you enjoy it. And what, you know, I would say to everyone, you know, watch the movie, read the book and you'll get a, it's like Hamilton, you know, uh, Hamilton was a great stage show and the book is a, a, that it's based on is a fabulous history. You get an understanding and appreciation from this show that you don't get from the book and you get a lot more depth and history from the book than you do from the show together. They complement each other really well. So I, I think that's, I think that's an ideal adaptation, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I have to ask this question. It's probably not a great question, but I always want to make sure I understand sort of like your views of the industry you cover. So have you ever felt jaded by the tech industry and the venture industry? And if so, how have you overcome that? Oh, sure. Like you said, when I'm pitched a story uh, financing that happened a year ago, or if I find out after the fact that somebody has been misleading me and some of the information they've given, or if they've been a bit wooly and I, you know, I I printed the legend as the, as the saying goes. And, you know, I, that it's just a good reminder that you have to be vigilant and try and ask the questions and, and, and remain tough. But that's the same thing in anything in journalism. You know, we, we get things wrong all the time. We are the first draft of history, as it says. So that emphasis on first draft. Yeah. You said that pisses you off when you get things, you know, misled or something, but you obviously stay motivated to find the truth eventually. For sure. You know, and, and sometimes I'll get the story right and sometimes I won't. And sometimes I'll ultimately get it right if I, if I stick with it or do subsequent reporting. And sometimes I'll point out, you know, media coverage, earlier media coverage that didn't, uh, didn't quite hit the mark in terms of seeing what was, what was really going on. In terms of being jaded, you know, there's a lot of hype out there and a lot of hype about the next new thing. And that can be a little, uh, you know, trying to navigate that can be a bit frustrating. Like, <laughs> remember when Clubhouse came out and like, I, I was like, oh, do I really have to go do this thing now? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, so relieved when Clubhouse kind of like went, you know, fell out of favor six or eight months later. I'm like, okay, well, I, I'm glad I skipped that one that I didn't double down on that one and, and get sucked into that world because I think that's, I think that's something. Are you still loyal to Twitter though? I still use it. It's always been kind of frustrating and wild and wooly and it is now it's just wilder and woolier now. I, I'm not happy with a lot of the changes like most Twitter users, but you know, I still, I'm not going to pay for my blue blue check mark. Sorry. What if Elon offers to pay for your Sean? Yeah, well, maybe on Tuesday and then on Wednesday he won't. And then Thursday he'll change his mind. And then uh, who knows with that guy, you know, he's, he's kind of hard to follow, but I will say that I'm using LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is now my first place I go with stories. 
I share all my stories all the time on Twitter and LinkedIn. I find the engagement on LinkedIn is a little more um, substantive. People, first of all, people use their real names and, and you're not limited to 140 uh, characters. So it feels a little more grown up. It feels- It's our generation's Facebook. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess. But it's, you know, it's my platform, but I use both platforms and for the for the foreseeable future, I will. I don't, I haven't seen any Twitter alternatives that, that you know, I, I find particularly satisfying. The whole Mastodon thing just sounds strange. So I don't think I'll be there. Interesting. I, I wonder if you'll ever be a, a Substack writer, if you want to be writing a little bit more on the side on things that you're passionate about or uh, that gets you excited about life. But I guess we'll wait to see if that day comes for you. You know, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. Well, I'd have to put Tank Talks up there. And uh, I do like Pivot, although sometimes I find that Kara and Scott are like uh, midwives for uh, for corporate mergers. Like they're forever talking about oh, who's going to buy Pinterest, <laughs> who's going to buy this, who's going to buy that. And they're a little, just a little obsessed with Elon Musk. But but I still like, I actually got my uh, one of my kids to listen to Pivot with me, which is, which is fun. Oh, that's exciting. I wait to get to my two-year-old daughter to listen to Tank Talks with me. Favorite newsletter or blog? I don't get into them as much as I should, but I, I do like to check in on Stratechery. You know, I don't know if it counts as a blog, but you know what? Mavericks is putting out a lot of good content uh, on Medium. Uh, version one, I mean, every time Boris uh, uh, and Angela post something, it's a must read, usually about, uh, you know, where they see the world going that they want to invest in. You know what? On LinkedIn, I, fo- I, I love Jeffrey Funk. I think he's got, uh, he posts great stuff day in and day out. He's uh, uh, the first thing always that pops up in LinkedIn. And I really, I really, I, I think he, He's very good at finding good quality articles of the now and putting his his uh, spin on them with a few paragraphs. There's, those are all great suggestions. Next is your favorite tech gadget. Well, I'm a little old school. I've got here my uh, Olympus uh, recorder, although the earlier version, this one here, is even better. It's uh, it's relatively analog. A lot of my colleagues uh, just report re- record straight to phone, but I like I like these little handheld. Uh, yeah, I find them a little more dependable. You like the buttons. I, I like the buttons. I like the buttons. I still like my old uh, Blackberries, but I don't use them, of course. Next up is your favorite new trend. Fluidity. Fluidity. It's very intriguing, particularly in music. Like I've noticed this um, thanks to YouTube and TikTok. Our kids are getting exposed to all kinds of music. Like when I grew up, you listened to your music. You didn't listen to your parents' music, and you certainly wouldn't listen to your grandparents' music. And I just find now the kids... We'll listen to anything that they find good or interesting. And I think a lot of the musicians and bands making music are, are, are leading people in all kinds of, uh, all kinds of different uh, directions. Like I love hearing this. There's this little uh, thing that pops up on TikTok. It's a, this fe- female voice going, oh, no, oh, no. I don't know if you've heard that. Oh, no, 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 no. I was like, what? I was like, I was like, what is that? That must come from somewhere. And I did a little research and it was from a, like a 1961 song by the Shangri-Las. Now, I don't know if the 13 and 14 year olds are doing that research, but I find it interesting, you know, and, and the platforms like Spotify and Apple, I think they take you to interesting places. And I think that's creating a broader sense of uh, a more eclectic set of musical interests. But I think the fluidity is happening in other areas of life as well. So I'm curious to see where that goes. That's a really optimistic view of how social media can create some good uh, benefits for the next generation. I guess, yeah. A social media optimist, who knew? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The next one, I'm sure you're going to say the answer, I think, is uh, Losing the Signal. But what is your favorite book besides your own co-written book? Well, I would recommend other people read Losing the Signal. I, I'll, I'll disqualify myself from that one. I, I've got a few. For fiction, I love uh, picking up a Graham Greene book. Uh, I, I, I read one about every couple of years. For business books, there's lots of great ones. 
you know, a book I recommend to everyone is Sapiens. I just enjoy that book so much and it's just so ridiculously readable and it kind of changed the way I, I think about the world. So that's, you know, not many books that do that. Really? Yeah. In your own life, in your own career, in what sense? Well, just the sense that, you know, all these institutions are just, they exist in the mind, you know, like corporations, governments, and re- religious institutions exist because people come together collectively and say they are so. A corporation is uh, is an abstract thing that exists. It's a legal document. And, and these all result from stories that we tell, collective stories that we adopt and, and accept. And, and that's a very powerful concept. And it made me sort of double down on the idea of being a, being a journalist storyteller, you know, and what I tell sort of helps shape the fabric of people's thoughts. So, so yeah, that, that one had a big influence on me in that way. You know, there's a really fantastic history on Walt Disney, the, the man, uh, and of course the company he built by Neil Gabler. And it's a fantastic story. Uh, it's a really interesting book. It's thick. It took me months to read. And you realize, you know, among other things that most of his life Walt Disney led a not very financially successful company. It's kind of the same thing with Shoe Dog, you know, and that's Shoe Dog is also a great read. And it's the same sort of thing. They, you know, you learn about how hard it is to, how hard it was to build these giant companies that we take for granted today. And I think there, I think both of those books are great essential reads for entrepreneurs starting out who see these big monolithic corporations and think they were just, that the companies were like born on third base. They weren't, it was hard hard work and ups and downs along the way, compromises, sacrifices, you name it. So I think those are great. Uh, great. And I think a companion movie to that would be The Founder about Ray Kroc at McDonald's. You know, good uh, good sense. Uh, other books, uh, The Rise and Fall of American Growth by Robert Gordon is an amazingly interesting book. It talks about how how much the world had cha- has changed from changed from 1870 to 1940, 1940 to 1970. And it's a really interesting walk through history to realize just how much things like plumbing, the arrival of automobiles, what else? Uh, refrigeration changed our world, increased life expectancy. Last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Work hard. There are no shortcuts to ultimate success and satisfaction. Absolutely. That sounds like something you've embodied your entire life as a journalist covering the Canadian venture and tech ecosystem. So thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Sean Silkoff, business journalist at the Globe and Mail. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot and hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.